Welcome to Fresh Research, a podcast from the Nonprofit Times. We explore some of the most interesting and sometimes provocative findings focused on the world of nonprofits. Thanks for tuning in. Here at the Nonprofit Times, we see tons of great fresh research. So in each episode, we take a recent study or survey and have a conversation with the authors about what they found and why they think it's important for charities. We'll also give away some books and give you access to other valuable information from the Nonprofit Times. Endowments are a common form of giving to higher education, arts, and medical research organizations. But between 2000 and 2013, only 5% of philanthropic gifts of $10 million or more were deployed to endow social change organizations. And on average, the endowments of organizations led by people of color were almost four times smaller than those of white-led organizations, and their average percentage of revenue was less than half. Hi, I'm Mark Harivna for the Nonprofit Times, and in this episode of Fresh Research, William Foster, Managing Partner, and Darren Isom, Partner at the Bridgespan Group, talked to me about their analysis of the investment income of 56 nonprofits dedicated to social change. Based on their analysis, Foster and Isom authored a piece for Stanford Social Innovation Review titled Endow Black-Led Nonprofits. In this episode, Isom and Foster tackle what they say are three objections that funders and donors often cite about endowing social change nonprofits. They also get into some context about the disparity of endowment sizes of historically Black colleges and universities. And now, here's my conversation with William Foster and Darren Isom. My first thought is, after reading this, what was the timeline on the research or the perspective, and how did Mackenzie Scott's giving make a difference, or, or has that not reached these numbers yet? Because that was my first thought, was how much money Mackenzie Scott had given to uh, historically black, co- black colleges, for instance. I, I think she gave a billion dollars to, to several of them. Uh, which was fascinating. And I'm curious where sort of her giving has fit in, if at all, into your into your discussion and your data. This work, Mark, uh, goes back several years of Darren and I, you know, tossing this around, being frustrated, if you will, at the amount of money sitting on the sidelines in philanthropy that wasn't moving in powerful ways to social change organizations, to Black-led organizations. Um, and uh, you know, we're thrilled when 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 donors step up in massive ways, like Mackenzie Scott has. But this but this research and the the question of of the potential for endowments is is sort of broader than that. Mm-hmm. And I'll jump in with that as well. I think that you know, Mark, you'll appreciate that the events of the last uh, two three years or so. I joke all the time that it gave wealthy white donors permission to engage in the equity conversation and to feel a sense of belonging uh, and supporting Black-led organizations uh, and Black-led causes. Um, I think that, you know, William has done quite a bit of work um, and been leading quite a bit of work with an organization around big bets and how do you basically think about big ways to get money off the sidelines, but more importantly, just to invest in a big way. And what was interesting about this work is that it was one of those tools that we knew existed. It was around. Uh, but it just wasn't being used in this context, in this conversation. And so much of the work within the philanthropic space right now is really thinking about how can we we be really thoughtful about maximizing the number of income streams that social change organizations and Black-led organizations have in a way to create 
sustainable organizations. So I think that you know was really important context for the work itself. This is all about all of us trying to figure out how do we take advantage of the moment in a way that you know creates the most sustainable change um, and allows organizations that are or folks that are giving away money to do so in a way that's really meaningful toward the future. As it relates to the numbers, I think that you know there's been quite a bit of uh, investment in the past two years towards Black-led organizations, HBCUs. Uh, quite a few high net worth individuals. Those numbers still, those numbers don't necessarily, they haven't changed that much uh, when all is yeah. said and done. Um, so I think that, you know, just the magnitude, you know, I think that that Howard's, uh, Howard's uh, endowment is now a little bit closer to a billion, but 700,000 to, I mean, you know, I think, uh, and Harvard's has probably tripled since the article. Um, so it doesn't necessarily, uh, but the, the number doesn't change that much. I think what we're trying to push is less, you know, I mean, clearly the numbers matter, wouldn't say otherwise, but we're trying to make sure the narrative changes as to what's seen as normal, what's seen as expected, and what role funders can play in driving that new narrative and disrupting an old one. I was also looking at uh, Candid, formerly the, the Guide Star and Foundation Center, now known as Candid. They estimated almost uh, $12 billion was pledged toward racial equity in 2020. I think, Darren, you, you referenced some of the, you know, obviously the last two years a lot of money, not only from foundations, but also corporate philanthropy just pouring into racial equity. So you're saying that's not even really, that's not really even a drop in the bucket just yet, but it's a start. Well, I can jump in. I mean, one, Mark, it's worth noting there's a big difference between an actual pledge and a payout, as we all know who pledge every year to NPR. And then when they come back to get their money, we have to make sure it happens, right? So I think there's a lot of funds that have been pledged that haven't paid out. And so this, Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I would hope that yes, that that all will make a big difference. But articles like this one are meant to give people a sense of how they use their pledge um, and where the pledge goes and how that money can be distributed. And, and it's worth adding, Mark, you know, we, we believe um, that there's an enormous unmet desire for, 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 for the wealthiest philanthropists to give away more money, right? When folks sign the giving pledge, it's a sincere commitment in our experience and find themselves for a variety of reasons sort of stymied at being able to have more money flow, stymied at being able to have more money flow to sort of the, 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 the most um, ambitious but underdeveloped organizations, often those that are proximate, often those led by people of color. And what appeals to us so much about um, you know, this way of, of, of thinking about endowments is that it's a very stodgy tool. It's a, a stodgy tool for a radical purpose. Um, we're not talking about some sort of sophisticated community, you know, input, you know, joint governance. It's, it's about giving money that you have to an organization that can deploy it um, in perpetuity. And it's how all the greatest institutions that have had a huge effect on our civil society were built. Um, and for whatever reason, it is the dominant mode of giving to the established institutions, universities, art museums, you name it. And fewer than 5% of big bets in our research actually are endowments. And there's huge disparities with those going to those led by black leaders. And it's um, it's like, it's not rocket science, a pretty stodgy, well-known tool that we think can, can make a, a, that can unleash an enormous amount. My first thought is um, that's probably um, because of tax incentives primarily. And, and it, should that be something that that can that should change to encourage um, other ways of giving or other other destinations for the giving? 
You know, I mean, interesting thought. I mean, going back to uh, William's point, I mean, it's been demonstrated that it works and that people do it, right? And so I don't think you don't, don't necessarily have to change anything to get people to keep doing what they've been doing already. I think what's interesting about endowment is that, you know, we've said before, the endowment is not just a gift of money, it's a transfer of power, right? Um, and so, you know, that makes endowments in some ways the ultimate form of trust-based philanthropy. The question becomes, how do you disrupt the narrative in, in which you share who you think should be given that power? Um, and I think that's where, in many ways, the, the, the things that need to change aren't necessarily legal issues, they aren't necessarily tax issues. There's actually a question around the narrative around power building, power seating, and how um, the endowment can be used as a way of transferring power to groups of folks who have greater proximity, uh, groups of folks who have closer proximity to the, not only the issues, but the solutions, and also organizations that we feel should be sustainable for just past our generation. Uh, and so I think that's more of the roadblock when you think about the work itself and less the legal or, or tax issues. In the article, we talk about some of the, you know, the myths uh, around endowments. And, you know, when Darren and I have talked with donors, you know, a variety of things come up. But I would say that one of the, the biggest barriers that, that donors talk about for giving to, 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 to you know, less established nonprofit organizations is this myth of absorptive capacity. You know, who who can, you know, who, who could take a $20 million grant? And, you know, it, and it's not a totally misplaced concern, meaning if there's a, a million dollar a year operating entity and you think about giving them $20 million, if the mental model of that is like they need to deploy it over three to five years, you know, that might be very disruptive and risk having a cliff, a fiscal cliff on the on the far end. And if you can flip your mental model to saying, take that same 20 million, how many organizations could absorb a million dollar a year stream of support in perpetuity? It just, it just opens the horizon and world so massively. Unfortunately, we don't suffer from social problems getting solved in five or 10 year periods of time. Almost all of the toughest problems are gonna be with us for decades and decades and decades. And it takes, you know, organizations that are in it and stable for the long haul, which is where this opportunity is. And William, can I build on that point a little bit? Because I think it's Please. a great one. I think that definitely, you know, as we think about the myth of absorptive capacity to some degree, I think, you know, there's something to be said that for black-led organizations, particularly those with a record of proven progress, giving them too much isn't the problem. The real pitfall is when you give them too little, right? And we, the, yeah. the situation is more the latter, right? And I use the term all the time, it's this idea of kind of, uh, we, we engage in a world of a philanthropic sharecropping where organizations are given just enough to make it into the year and ask for more the following year, right? Um, and so I think there's something to be said about how do you change the dynamic there? I think there's also just a, a more perverse conversation to be had, you know, when organizations like, you know, um, uh, NAACP or the Equal Justice Initiative or Community Change definitely proven long-term organizations do not have an endowment, right? Uh, and so that's, that really calls into question this, you know, this idea of whether or not they can carry out the work or whether or not they're gonna be around for a while. I think there's some other ones that are really interesting as well. And the one that I find most uh, problematic is the one that nonprofits should work themselves out of business. And this goes back to William's point that ultimately we have this kind of, you know, basically nonprofits see themselves as a vaccine, a relevant counter, um, modern reference, right? Uh, when in actuality racism, uh, white supremacy, social justice issues, they're not pandemics, they're endemic, right? And so we need organizations that can administer boosters every six, eight months within the country itself. Um, and so I think being able to think about building that infrastructure 
uh, for enduring uh, and sustainable uh, maintenance of our system. Um, and being able to bring in those community voices in a long-term way and for organization leaders to be able to think about their work past the three-year cycle, past their five or 10-year tenure as a leader, uh, and many generations down the line is where in many ways, you know, these endowments offer that opportunity um, in a powerful way. And the position and the time that we're in now just positions them as a, as a very logical um, solution. And, and you know, one of the points that Darren and I have talked about a lot too is, is having non, you know, is having nonprofit leaders have the courage to ask for it. You know, I'm involved with a nonprofit right now that is for the first time raising an endowment. And it wasn't an easy conversation to have, right? This notion of saying like, can we even dare to ask for that? Will donors react positively? So part of the reason Darren and I wrote this piece is about donor mindset, but another part is about encouraging, encouraging nonprofit leaders to, to have the guts to ask for what they need and value themselves um, in that right way, which, which doesn't, again, make it an easy conversation, but for sure it won't happen if you don't ask. Yeah. And I have, I mean, that's a great tee up, William. I have these, you know, just four pointers as I think about nonprofit organizations and their role in this conversation, things that they should be thoughtful about. And the first is one, going back to your point, William, have a number in mind. However bold it may come across, know exactly what's the number, what's the size of an endowment you would need in which the 5% payoff is greater than 50% of your annual, annual budget, right? Um, and it should be closer to 60 or 75% because you want it to be actually meaningful, right? Have that number, hold that number, respect that number, price with pride, normalize that number the way you normalize the price of a coffee at Starbucks, have that number in your heart the way you know the number of your student loan payout every month and your mortgage amount, right? Like, so have that number. And I think the more you normalize it, the more comfortable you feel with it and the more it sounds normal when you talk with folks. I think it's important for folks to really, and the second point is understand who's in your inner circle from a grant making perspective and how they can help, right? Um, this clearly is not an ask you make of every donor, right? You know your donors, you know which ones are up for this conversation, you know which ones you can do epic stuff with, right? You know which ones you're closest to, um, those are the folks that you cultivate for this, and this is the folks that you give a sense of belonging in the conversation. The third point is really articulating and demonstrating your relationship with the community as a powerful asset. Um, and I think this is where funders, grant makers recognize this is the thing they don't have. They don't have community connections. They don't have community proximity. And so nonprofit leaders, particularly those of organizations that are within the community itself, they can really leverage this as an asset. Uh, and they can use that to dictate kind of how they think about the strategy playing out and to also stop this whole strategic telephone game that is, <laughs> that is, you know, the ability to go between the funder, what the funder strategy is, the community, what the community impact is. And I think the final point is just to prioritize infrastructure as critical to impact. So really being thoughtful about how do you envision community success um, in an enduring and sustainable way? And how do you see your role as developing or driving not only high impact, but more importantly, driving a sustainable organization that can drive that impact over time. And that's a different way of thinking about impact. It's a different way of thinking about your role as an organization and as a leader, but it's one that's really important as you think about asking for this type of ask and driving the work in a meaningful way. Back with more about endowing Black-led nonprofits in a moment. If you like what you're hearing, share it with friends and colleagues on social media. Use the hashtag FreshResearch or retweet the Nonprofit Times link, and you'll be eligible to win a book from the NPT Library. 
Another way for folks to find the show, rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more than 30 years, the Nonprofit Times has been the leading business publication for nonprofit management. To subscribe, visit shopthenonprofittimes.com. You'll also find special issue coverage, relevant research like our Salary and Benefits Report and Best Nonprofits to Work For, plus other special reports and webinars. And keep up with the latest breaking news and in-depth reporting at thenonprofittimes.com. And now more with Darren Isom and William Foster of the Bridgespan Group. When you talk about absorptive capacity, I think of the uh, after the George Floyd protests in, in the spring of 2020, organizations were flooded with donations, particularly, I remember writing about the Minnesota Freedom Fund, uh, a bail reform, tiny bail reform organization, I think it was less than three years old, that just got inundated. I think it was a half a million dollar a year organization, maybe even less. And they suddenly have $30 million on there, you know, coming through their website for, for donations. And they ran some real issues just infrastructure-wise. It was, I think, a couple of volunteers, uh, maybe not even full-time staff, if I recall, uh, and a board that was trying to handle that. Uh, is that kind of what you, you talk about when you talk about absorptive capacity? Like the, those organizations should have endowments to handle that or shouldn't be donated to because they can't handle that? I mean, it was like I said, it was a three-year-old organization, maybe, maybe not even. It's a good observation marker and, and a sad one in some sense. You know, I've been in conversations with donors who've been reluctant to give to an organization because they didn't have a real chief financial officer, right? Where where they had a part-time bookkeeper and that sort of freaked out the donor. And of course, you know, the, the solution to not being well resourced with those kinds of team members is to be well resourced, right? I mean, it's it's you know, there's there, there's no shortage of being able to hire a full-time chief financial officer if you have the money to do it. So I think that you know those kinds of of perceptions are real, and they're all solvable with the very tool that philanthropists want to deploy, which is money. I, I think the I think the um the trickier issue here is on the programmatic side of the equation, right? Which is can can an organization do ten times as much good work, you know, the next year as they did the prior year? generally have to build up a little bit more. And I think not only donors, but I actually think a lot of nonprofit leaders have this sense of like, we have to solve it tomorrow. And to Darren, the point that you make so well about, you know, these, you know, racism and injustice being endemic, we're all in this for, for, for a long battle. And, and so windfall amounts of money can really be deployed over years and shouldn't be thought of as something that has to get moved the next day. And, and so for both the nonprofits and philanthropists, that mind shift could really open up possibilities. Um, and endowments are a very, you know, are, are a pretty simple and logical way to do it. So. Yeah, and Mark, to your point earlier, and, and, and thanks for that point around the, 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 the American system and how there's a need for constant maintenance. I, uh, Mark, you'll appreciate I'm a New Orleans boy. And so I just remember just growing up and sitting at the kitchen table and my uncle would always say when something came up that was problematic, we just look up and be like, well, oppression's, oppression's clever, right? It's, it's constantly changing and moving, right? And so I think that it's, <laughs> it's endemic within the country itself. And so I think there's something to be said about how do you keep up and make sure that the enduring institutions that can carry it out. I mean, so the, the, the myth of absorptive capacity, where that, what that looks like in the philanthropic world is that very often a foundation will say, well, you know, as we think about giving a gift to an organization, we can't give a gift that's bigger than any gift they've ever received before. 
I mean, you know, I mean, imagine, if, imagine if Mackenzie Scott had said that. Imagine if any high net worth individual who wanted to give at a, at a great level had said that. Imagine what it looks like when you have actual foundations that don't give gifts of less than a million dollars or $2 million. And there's a whole suite of organizations that are doing great work that fall under that um, threshold, right? right? And as a result, they can't fund that work. And so it becomes ridiculous. And it goes back to the whole idea of gerrymandering, right? I mean, the, it, it, literally, it's a, it's, a, it's a systemic way of, of keeping the status quo versus changing it, right? Yeah. And it becomes, I mean, it becomes a, a conversation and to some degree it can be re- really laced racism, right? It's like, you're basically cutting off who you can fund um, in a way, and you're preserving a certain group as the group that you want to fund and support. And so I think that, you know, as we think about absorptive capacity, this becomes a very interesting way of ensuring that organization, one, that you can grant a, a big amount of an organization to a big, a big amount of an organization in a way that sets them up to be stable in a way they can develop the operational skills that require that type of maintenance, but it is an investment and it is um, a sense of trust that empowers it to give the organization the funds they need to actually develop in the way that's meaningful and powerful. We haven't really touched on it, but um, in your paper, you you really put things in perspective when you look at endowments of say, uh, you mentioned, Darren, I think you mentioned Howard earlier, um, but all historically black colleges compared to say the Top, I think it was the top 100 universities in the country. How minuscule it is! Can you can you elaborate a little bit on that, just to give folks an idea of of what we're talking about, the disparity? Yeah, I can jump in, and I'll I'll jump in as a Howard graduate. So um, and so the, the the best endowed of all the the HB the HBCUs historically black colleges, our endowment now I think is somewhere around 800 million. Um, which, you know, I think uh, Harvard's is, is $4 billion, right? No, no, no. It, um, it's, it's, we'll pull it up, um, Mark, and maybe we can. But I think I saw... Like $40 billion. Oh, 40 yeah, billion. I, I think it's a reference where, to Yale, Yale growing by a, multiples of that number over the last yeah, few and years. And I think what's interesting is that you see um, organizations like, so even Howard, endowment of close to 800 million, I think is where it is now. I mean, what we don't say plainly is that Howard's endowment is larger than all 100 and whatever, uh, I think it's 120 historical black colleges combined, right? Um, and so, you know, so I think that just, just disparity there's so pronounced. And I think that also this is where I joke as someone studied abroad and I, I joke that Americans have really a poor sense of numbers, right? Because um, a billion dollars is a thousand millions. 40,000 millions, right? And Howard's is 800, right? And so I think the disparity there is just so pronounced uh, and so meaningful and powerful that speaks to disparity in power, right? And so I think there's just a huge need for us to think about those numbers in a a, a very rational way and how do we correct those? I think it also speaks to the need when we talk about funding. Uh, If you're worth as a funder, 80,000 millions, right? What does it mean to give away a hundred of those? Right. So I think that there's just a need. I joke all the time. There's a need for a, a higher price point for giving. We need some philanthropic inflation, right, where people are giving away more money because there's a greater need in that sense as well. And this is where endowments come in as well. And, and part of what, you know, Darren's getting at here, um, which, you know, runs through a lot of our thinking here, which is, you know, about you know, what does it take for nonprofits to be able to solve the most pernicious problems more more powerfully, um, you know, funding and, and, and support is a big part of it. And size matters, right? You know, there's a difference between giving, you know, two of those, you know, millions versus a hundred of those millions. And, um, 
and and a lot of nonprofits are are are, are sort of vastly under-resourced for the problems that they take on. And a lot of donors bemoan the fact that there aren't more strong nonprofits addressing the issues that, that they care about most. And the, you know, of course, the solution to, to the dearth of strong nonprofits in spaces is to make more strong nonprofits. And, and that's where, you know, this kind of thinking we hope can help unlock things. If I'm a nonprofit leader, nonprofit executive, what's your biggest takeaway from this paper? If I'm if I'm reading it, what what should I really go back and, and think about hard? Yeah. So if you're a nonprofit leader, I think that one, you know, I joke all the time that I would love for everyone, as we talk about anything philanthropy related and what success looks like, for people to price with pride. Um, and so I think that people should be proud of the work that they do. They should be proud of what they're trying to um, create from an impact perspective. Uh, and they should be able to see their work uh, in a long-term perspective. And so being able to receive the right investments to drive the work past their tenure, past generation becomes really thoughtful um, and important. And I would think for any of the work that we're creating at Bridgevan, particularly with this article, I would hope that people, nonprofit leaders see this as kind of as hope, some hope as they think about success in the work and the thinking itself. I would also hope that this would allow uh, nonprofit professionals and leaders to think about how do they reposition themselves within the conversation with philanthropy as a philanthropic, as a leader within that conversation and as someone with positionality to drive the conversation as opposed to just being responsive to the conversation. And a piece around understanding your community asset, um, your relationship to the community as an asset becomes really important. I think it becomes really important as well for um, nonprofit leaders to be thinking about not only how do they receive investments from funders, but how do they use something like an endowment as a way of protecting an investment, right? And so there's really something to be said about, yeah, you've given me 300, whatever, 330 million to date, 40 million to date. You want to protect that investment? It's an endowment. That's how endowment does that, right? And so really offering different tools and ways of thinking about that work um, that's powerful. And, you know, and I would love for William to just drop uh, a point, you know, about how reserves in general are just really low for nonprofit organizations. But I think that, um, you know, one of the things that's really meaningful about this work is that we're trying to encourage people to think past the moment, think past themselves, and to really think uh, past the short term and think more strategically and in a long-term way. And we're trying to give them the tools to make that happen. And so I would hope that, you know, this gives them some space. I was reading a quote earlier from uh, Angel Peter Williams, I love his space. Um, this, I hope, will give leaders the space they need to really um, leverage their Black excellence, leverage their Black genius, and think strategically about what impact looks like from a long-term perspective, and not just uh, engaging in short-term conversations that um, are speaking and centering, speaking to and centering the funder um, from an impact perspective. Darren, I'll, I'll build on that with the point that you had had pointed to, which is Lack of money is a, you know, this is not going to be a shocker to your audience, Mark, but like lack of money is a serious problem for, for doing the good work. You know, we did a study of, I think it was of, of the, the portfolios of the 15 largest foundations in the United States. And we looked at, you know, several hundred of, of their grantees and, and 40% had fewer than three months of cash reserves. And, and we know how hard it is to, to focus on, on impact and the quality of your work when you have that kind of albatross, you know, hanging over you. And I can't remember, I, I, I'll pull up the specifics that I think 30% had negative reserves, right? So, so the, the sort of 
the field of people dealing with some of the of our most challenging problems is is fragile, right? And so those data are are incredibly real. And one of the things that that thinking in the way Darren talked about of pricing with pride and your economic model very seriously is it creates a tangible way for donors to make a big impact. And that's one of the biggest barriers to donors, right? Of saying like, no kidding, what will be different three years out because I gave this money? And and on some of the problems we all wrestle with, it's, you know, they're ambiguous, they're, they're, you know, they're ambiguous, they're complicated, they're hard. So really how does the world change? But but the change in a nonprofit's ability to do good works reliably and sustainably and be a strong institution is very tangible and that can change overnight. And so the endowment is an entry point for nonprofit leaders to think about having that conversation with donors. And, and we hope some, and we hope more will. It's one of the ways that we think money can come off the sidelines from donors who genuinely intend to, to, to move that money, but it can come off the sidelines in an order of magnitude larger manner, which is you know part of the purpose Darren and I have in exploring this topic. Yeah, and I think that I think this, the the statistic was thirty of the two hundred seventy four organizations had negative reserves, which is still problematic in a huge way. I think also, I mean, one of the so much of this work is about narrative correction and disruption, Mark. And I think that we have unfortunately normalized a scarcity mindset for those folks working on the most critical issues in a country of ample abundance. Um, and so I think there's a need for us to really shift that narrative and give the folks that are you know, creating the, the most impact and driving the most critical issues, the liberate the capital they need to drive that work in a meaningful way uh, and to really maximize investments in a powerful way as well uh, and to share some of that abundance in a powerful way from an impact perspective as well as a financial perspective. Well, great, Darren and William, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a really great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, it's fun. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share the Fresh Research link on Twitter or Facebook to be eligible to win something from the NPT Library. You can also share on social media with the hashtag Fresh Research. And if you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Fresh Research, a podcast from the Nonprofit Times, spotlighting research and trends in the philanthropic sector. Until next time, keep up with us at thenonprofittimes.com for all your nonprofit news.